Hey there, and welcome to the Introverted Entrepreneur Podcast. My name is Denise Lee, and I'm a coach, a speaker, and a guy dedicated to help you become the best version of yourself. And today, I have the wonderful privilege of inviting you to enjoy the conversation I had with Dr. Carol Scott. She is such a phenomenal woman, a brilliant speaker, international best-selling offer, coach, trainer, and keynote speaker. And today we had such an amazing conversation about understanding who you are on a deep level. Carol has a bachelor's in multiple things, childhood development, anthropology, and master's in early childhood education, and a doctorate in developmental psychology. And today we had the conversation about understanding the formative years of life and how undealt trauma can impact your career ambitions and anything else that you want to attain. So if you have found yourself in angst or anxiety or insomnia or unable to really be able to be your best version of yourself, listen to today's episode. We're going to be really diving into who you are, the best version of you, and how you can achieve not just clarity, but serenity in your life. So make sure that you dial in and take some notes, and we're going to get to it after this short break. Hi, Carol. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm so good, Denise. It's a beautiful day in my neighborhood. How about you? I'm doing good. You know, you have the luxury of roaming around and seeing this beautiful country and Mexico. I do. <laughs> I'm an RV nomad, but the good kind, not the sad and sorry and depressed kind. <laughs> oh, and you know, it's funny you mentioned nomad because my husband watched the movie Nomad. I think it happened a couple of years ago and about a woman discovering herself while living a nomadic existence. And Mm -hmm. this is going to be a really great conversation about discovering yourself. And a a lot of it's kind of looking back. And for those who are listening, I just have a little bit of a disclaimer, so that we are all on the same page about what we're Carol and I are going to be talking about is that this podcast does not provide mental health advice. Okay, this is only for informational purposes. And always seek the advice of your physician or another qualified mental mental health care provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before taking any new regime and never disregard professional medical or mental health and seeking it because it may have, just because you listen to this and think that this is a replacement. But Carol is going to be sharing some really good information about who she is and some things that you will learn about perhaps trauma is still affecting how you run your business and how you live your life. So Carol, would you please kind of explain to those who are listening a little bit, a brief background about yourself and your work? Oh, sure. I'd love to. Yes, I am not a licensed therapist or clinical social worker. I'm not a clinician. What I am is an expert on child development. So I have a 40 plus year career working with young children, their families, and the systems that support them in our country of the United States. Um, Things like early care and education programs, Head Starts, child care, preschool programs, and the licensing of teachers for those programs and et cetera. And so what I understand is the normal developmental path we're all supposed to follow from birth to seven and all the ways that can get interrupted, upset, turned upside down. 
And this is going to be a conversation about focusing about how trauma has impacted us as we live our lives as an adult. And Mm -hmm. I know that you've got an upcoming event. I do on October 1st, Saturday, October 1st at 11 o'clock Pacific time. I'm offering an online workshop called Sassy Trauma Recovery. So for those listeners who are maybe facing their adverse childhood experiences or ACEs for the very first time, or uh, those who've been kind of looking them squarely in the pain-filled eyes for a while now, learning how to love yourself whole, whether you're a bit overwhelmed by the recovery path or you're feeling like you're making some progress, this framework that I offered, the SAS or Self-Aware Success Strategies, is a support to what you're doing. And so we're going to take 90 minutes to take a look at that on October 1st. We're going to leave a link in the show notes below so that you can take advantage of that. So Carol, let's talk about the first three years of life. I have been doing some research myself and I have found out that thankfully when a woman is pregnant and and undergoing stressful situations, she is having so much cortisol that's the stress hormone and thankfully doesn't pass (laughs) to the baby because the baby would Mm -hmm. literally be shocked. But I've been hearing that stress and trauma in those early formative years of life can have lasting impacts. Can you please talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. Um, we, the research that we um, mostly look at um, about this now in early childhood years comes from a health insurance study by Kaiser back in the 1990s. And they were looking at um, a population of low-income people coming to their clinics in Los Angeles and looking for common denominators that might help them provide a more helpful infrastructure of healthcare supports. And they learned something very shocking that um, out of this population, um, they that the most uh, significant thing that they had in common was a shared history of what are now called adverse childhood experiences or ACEs. And they are 10 experiences, um, different kinds of abuse and neglect and different kinds of family dysfunction that actually essentially rewire the child's brain. They have an impact on brain development as it's occurring after birth. And so these children grow up to be adults who are more, more prone not only to have mental health problems and emotional dysfunctions and relationship problems, but they also have physical health problems. They're more likely to have cancer and other debilitating diseases. They're more likely to have diabetes and high blood pressure and have a whole lot of health uh, issues that they now think of as uh, health caused by social determinants, health diseases caused by social determinants. And so what we're looking at as a field professionally um, is what can we do to prevent children from having those experiences too early so that they don't wind up with a life that is no longer their own, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, Carol, when everyone thinks of trauma, it's usually the most egregious, mm-hmm. for example, incest or rape or physical abuse or verbal abuse, but there's also softer forms of trauma that can occur during the childhood years. Mm-hmm. Well, certainly some of those family dysfunctions look a little softer on the outside. If you have, um, for example, if you have a parent who is uh, themselves has a mental health diagnosis, even a mom with 
serious postpartum depression can fall into this category, but a parent who has bipolar disorder or um, is severely depressed in some other way, that has an impact on the day-to-day -day interaction between adult and child. Um, witnessing the abuse of one of your caregivers by another person is one of those two. So those are sometimes hidden outside world, yes. whereas the indicators of physical abuse and sexual abuse are more um, vivid for us. But also, there are just an awful lot of opportunities to support children's development and lift them on that natural developmental pathway that get missed in some families. That's it's, it's just like a missed opportunity to support the development. And that can, as a pattern, create some pretty serious um, impediments to the development of successful interpersonal health. You know, one of the things that we have been experiencing in our culture today is, I shouldn't say today, but I remember when I was growing up and there's still segments of it, of participation trophies, where mm -hmm. everyone got acknowledged and got an award mm -hmm. because of the thought behind it was the, the reason why they're not performing is because they're not acknowledged. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that it's, it's not so much they weren't acknowledged is that they weren't valued. Yes. And I think that's an important piece of very early development. We, we all of us need to feel that we are valued for the uniqueness that we are. And I call that the success strategy of independence. And it is programmed into us for development uh, during our toddler period from about 18 months to about 24 30 months, getting on toward three years of age. And it's when we discover who we are, that we are a unique being with thoughts and feelings and um, desires and needs all our own, different from everybody else's. And that little package that is you needs to know that it is seen as valuable, worthy, and expected. It really needs to feel celebrated. Each person mm -hmm. needs to feel like people are delighted with who I am. Yeah. And it's not some cliche little badge or no a, a certificate. Would you speak a little bit about the success model? Sure. The, the self-aware success strategies or SAS are seven, what I think of as interpersonal or social and emotional intelligences. They're ways that we get along with other people better through reciprocity, collaboration, mutual respect. And they start developing in us right from birth with trust because infants are totally dependent. And so they have to trust that you'll take care of them, feed them, clothe them, keep them mm -hmm. safe. And then that second one that I already mentioned, independence as the toddler, figuring out this is who I am as an independent being. And I'm different from everybody else. And I like myself just as I am. And I can like other people just as they are, even though they're different. So that's independence. And then the three-year-old develops the capacity that I call faith, the social and interpersonal capacity to dream, to play, to imagine, to uh, believe in things that are not necessarily possible or proven. And so it includes religion, but it's bigger than religion. It's the ability to believe in anything that you don't have proof for. Mm -hmm. And then at four, and if you've ever known a four-year-old, you totally get this, negotiation, the ability <laughs> to get what you want. Yeah. So four-year-olds go from that playful, imaginative, I want to grow up to be a unicorn place to, okay, I'm realizing that we need some rules here. We need to have things, you know, structured, orderly. I need to know how to get my needs and my wants met. I need to know how to get what I want in life. And so they learn how to pitch 
their interests into the ball field of our interests as adults. They learn how to ask for something in a way that lets the adults say yes, basically. So they learn the win-win strategy at four. Isn't that astonishing? Wow. wow. <laughs> they, all, they all become little labor negotiators at four years of age. And then, you, go ahead. Oh, you know, you can actually see in preschool and kindergarten, who's a little negotiator, who's the bully, who yeah. <laughs> is yes. the class clown. It's it, those personalities. I mean, Freud, Sigmund Freud said that, you know, we are cooked at by age three. And it's so, how true is that? You it's can definitely see personalities. True extremely true and a matter of fact now what freud didn't know that we know now because of neuroscience is the brain is actually wired 85 percent of it between birth and age three 85 mm. percent of your brain gets built literally from scratch after you're born and so yeah we are created to be who we are by the time about three and then we go about applying it and it starts with negotiating to get what we want and then they turn from the labor negotiator into the strategic planner of the preschool world at five with the success strategy of vision, which is the ability to have a, a goal and engage people in helping you get there. You know, and if you've ever watched a group of five-year-olds together, they spend a lot of time planning how to play. Assign, oh, yeah. Assigning roles, scripting it out. First, this is going to happen. Then that's going to happen. And you're going to be this character and I'm going to be that character. And they'll plan quite happily for a long time without ever playing at all, because it's about the planning. And it's mm. about being, it's the, it's the first signs of real strong leadership, usually in kids, is when you see the one leading the planning on the playground. <laughs> mm -hmm. You know, one of the things that I see that in clients, I know you've seen it as well, is that the reason why there's, Failure to launch or failure to scale is because of the inability to communicate wants and needs. Yes, yes, very much so. And a lot of that comes from those missed opportunities for development, where instead of telling little kids what you want and what you need is perfectly valid, and let's see how you can get it inside the container of what I know to be safe and mm. healthy and okay with the neighborhood, you know? Yeah. yeah. You know, you can't do everything, but you can do a lot. And children are kept from doing way too many things that they should be able to try. Yeah, it's it's amazing. Like my son is six years old and I'm slowly divorcing myself from being his alarm clock, being uh -huh. his sandwich maker, being his laundromat, you know, uh -huh. and I, I, we have been taught so much erroneously We've got, we, we swing back and forth the pendulum of overprotection versus neglect. And I believe that there is a friendly middle ground which cultivates independence, self-sufficiency, and pride in one's work. I'm not talking about hubris, you know, yes, overinflated yes. sense of ego, but genuine pride. Yes, absolutely. And instead, we, I have seen in my career so many four and five-year-old kids who are already hesitant to try afraid mm. to step forward, won't open their mouths, won't answer the question, answer with, I don't know, because they're afraid to be wrong. They're afraid to give the answer that will lose them the love of the valuable adult. And that just breaks my heart. Yeah. And I, I know through your, um, your sassy guide, and we'll leave a link in the show notes below for people ask what, what is sassy? Well, you got to click the link and find out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, one of the things I see so often is this, the four terrible communication signs, abruptness. I don't want to talk about this. This is the end secretiveness. Mm -hmm. You should be no, what I want. Um, 
condescending. All you people uh, are like this and they, you guys don't know what you're doing and evasiveness where you, they won't even tell you their wants and needs. And all of that stems from modeling. When I say modeling for the benefit of the listeners, what they, you have observed from your parents or parental figures mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or messages that you take in from them that they may not intend to give, even though it's quite directly worded. Don't touch that. That's mm-hmm. dirty. Mm. don't you're you're overwhelming your emotion is too big right now calm down you know that's a message that says you're not okay the way you are when you're two you can understand it as an adult that they mean something different but when you're two you can't i for the benefit of those who are listening i want to talk about the child voice that still lives within us Mm. and most people think that child voice dies when we come become an adult no, <laughs> not at all. And as a matter of fact, I think for those of us who um, really went through a childhood with um, either or <laughs> either lots of, of trauma, adverse childhood experiences, or lots of missed opportunities to support our development or a combination thereof, um, we just really don't have the ability to look at life from that perspective, if you will. Hmm. You know, I was sharing uh, with my husband a couple of weeks ago, I don't know, it was, it was recently, and I said, one of the things that my father said to me as a joke was, I was a space cadet. Mm. And that was an attribution that I couldn't think, and I mm-hmm. couldn't be aware. Mm-hmm. And while he said it playfully, it was very damaging. Of course. Of course. And if that's consistent, I think that's the thing that I want parents always to hear if this is you know sort of ringing bells for you as a parent oh my gosh I've ruined my kiddo probably not because it's about the consistency if this is all the child hears is you're not okay the way you are you can't have what you want your emotions are too big for me you're a space cadet you know for the labels you're shy you know whatever labels we put on them if all of that is the most consistent pattern then they are going to miss out on some of these social and emotional intelligences. And what happens is, as you pointed out earlier, we develop other strategies. We become bullies. We become codependent. We become victims. Mm -hmm. So we have social strategies, all of us. Some of us are more successful than others. Let's define codependency for the benefit of the listeners, because I know we're talking of a lot of jargon. I want to make sure that everyone finds knowledge and understands it uh, on a little simplistic terms. You know, I, I think that there's very great definition of codependence um, that is um, well-defined, especially in Melody Beatty's new book called The New Codependence. Oh. But, even, but even back in 1985, when she wrote Codependent, Codependent No More, no more. Whatever, whatever year that was that that came out in the 80s, um, you know, that, that's a very clearly defined content. But I think of it really simply as um, I have externalized everything. So my Mm. happiness is outside me. My control is outside of me. Other people control me and I control other people. Um, And I do not really have any sense of agency, Mm. of initiative, of Mm. causation and Mm. management in my life. And so people who are codependent are forever interfering with other people's lives, getting, I I think of one of the classic examples is getting in between somebody and the consequences of their choice, their behavior, or also um, telling somebody how they should feel instead of listening to how they do feel. 
and trying to control people's behavior. It isn't about alcohol, really, at all. It's about social relationships. And so, yeah, you can be codependent if you're an alcoholic or if you live with an alcoholic, but you also can be codependent with nobody alcoholic in your life. Mm-hmm. You know, when I think about codependence, Carol, I think about a perfect, a match made in hell with a, a narcissist, uh-huh. you know, because in order to be fully enmeshed into someone's world, you need someone who's willing to find someone to blame for everything. Yes. That's the only way it can work. Yes. And also, though, we have a lot of codependent type behaviors that are just kind of common by gender for women. So mm. how many times in your life have you heard a woman say this to you or someone else? Well, I didn't tell you that because I didn't want you to feel X, Y, Z. Uh Okay. That's like the most codependent statement on the planet. And if they would just hear themselves and stop with, I didn't want you to feel Hmm. that tells you that it's codependent. I am trying to stop you from having an emotion. I'm trying to control your emotional response to me. And it's, it's, it's a protective device. It's a way to feel safe. I don't want you to get angry at me. So I'm not going to tell you this thing. I don't want you to feel angry. I don't want you to feel like I'm not okay. So I'm going to not tell you the truth. I want anyone who's listening, who feels that Carol is making you nod your head at least more than once (laughs) 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 to check out her uh, upcoming workshop. And I just want to say that I see this codependency issue And so many different areas. I remember I was at church and I was observing a mother sitting next to her, directly next to her son. And then her husband was in the next aisle over. Mm -hmm. And the codependent behavior was off the the chain. Like during the, uh, the sermon time, she kept nudging her son to look at the phone to make sure she was reading the, you know, he was reading the, the, the the scripture or making sure that he was paying attention. Mm -hmm. This child looked, there wasn't even a child actually 13 years old. Wow. Yeah. Yep. And, and, you know, in my own life, I have, um, I do have a family full of alcoholics. I was M1 myself, 36 years sober. Um, but, uh, all my siblings, uh, overused alcohol and drugs when we were younger. My dad was an alcoholic uncles, alcoholics. And it was like, I, I like to joke and say, I come from a long, proud line of alcoholics, but, <laughs> but my, at once I got sober, my codependence was still completely off the chain, as you said, because I was trying to control everybody else's drinking. I was trying to get them to stop. And that's where the dynamic, you know, was originally identified was in the lives of alcoholics and codependence within alcoholic families. But now we can see it as a much larger phenomenon of a need to control other people in order to feel safe and a need to externalize all the sources of my own feeling okay, my own okayness is not inside me. It's out there with you all. That's wrong. Yeah. I I see this dynamic so many times with clients as well, where, you know, trying to convince a client to raise prices so that she can be (laughs) able to pay her her employees. Yes. Yes. (laughs) But they won't be able to afford me. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Familiar with that dynamic too. I had to get past that hurdle myself. Where were you as my coach, Denise? I needed (laughs) (laughs) the fear of stating who you cannot help because you're afraid of alienating. Yes. The fear of not ending or suspending certain services or products because you fear that the one person that only buys it will not have any other recourse. Oh yeah. 
Oh yeah. I hope I'm ringing doorbells for people who are listening. <laughs> that codependency <laughs> worms this little way around where it you've does. been hearing messages over and over. Be perfect. Don't fail. Don't mess up. Sit up straight. Don't disappoint. And those yeah. voices that from that that childhood experiences never go away and they have to be worked out through help. Yes. And what, you know, when I talk about the success strategy of independence, the, the, the coaching work, the healing work is around gaining really essential boundaries of identity. And we talk about boundaries as things that we set and require of other people. But the first requirement is to have a container, a boundary around who you are. Do mm. you know how you feel and that other people don't feel that way too when you feel it? Mm. Do you expect other people to know how you feel without you talking about it? You've mm. got leaky boundaries. If you don't know how you feel, what you think, what you want, what you need inside of a container, like a skin, like your physical boundary of your skin, mm. then you're going to be codependent. It starts mm. right there. Can we talk about magical thinking? <laughs> oh, I love yes. to talk about Let's, magical thinking. Can we talk thinking. about magical thinking? Yes. You know, and I think I, I love that magical thinking is a part of childhood. And I think magical thinking with the understanding that it's magical is an important part of adulthood because invention and, and creativity and imagination should never leave us. Mm. But magical thinking is the kind of thinking that says, if I just do this right or differently, or I stop doing it, or I start, if I do something, I can make other people behave mm. the way I want them to. Mm. And that is like the height. It's one of the heights of codependent behavior is to imagine that I can magically transform other people into being more helpful, being less toxic, um, being the kind of person I wish they were simply mm. by wishing it were so, or by behaving in a certain way. If I uh, if I just shape up and fly right, if I just mm. stop this or start those three things, everything's going to be different. That is the way a three-year-old thinks. A three-year-old literally thinks they can grow up to be a unicorn. <laughs> well, you know, great. That's a wonderful thing to imagine. Let's play with that. Let's dress up like unicorns and have a good time with it. <laughs> and by the time you're four or five, you should realize that's not really going to ever happen. It's still fun to think about, but it's not something you can make happen. I, I know we're mostly talking within the professional sense, but I allow me to make a little detour and talk mm. about it in the personal romantic life where Wendy, 40-year-old Wendy, is trying to get 45-year-old Peter to grow up and get a job. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> Yes, yes, yes. Anybody who stays in a relationship where the same thing has been true of their partner for the past 20 years and they think they can change it by doing something is thinking magically. Absolutely. I, 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 I'm saying all this for anyone who's listening and thinking that, well, yeah, my childhood was screwed up and it was bad, but I'm okay now, but I have anger problems. Oh, by the way, I have ulcer attacks uh -huh. because I can't process my emotions normally yes it, it spills out on so many different areas and it has a cascade physically emotionally spiritually yes and I, you know i think the the sort of bottom line that we can all agree on is if there were 
challenging circumstances in your childhood, if you had an abusive parent, an alcoholic parent, a parent with a mental health diagnosis, somebody sexually abused you, you're not okay. You can Mm. say you're okay, but you're not okay. And you need to start talking with some people about that. Find a therapist, find a coach, get some support and learn more because there are buried things that are evident. It's like, you've heard of the term blind spot, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think of it as something that hangs out behind my head and everybody looking at me can see it, but I can't, (laughs) right? Mm. Yeah, and people absolutely. look at you and they see your trauma. They see your behavior. They may not see your trauma, but they see the behavior and they wonder what the heck is wrong with this gal. And what's wrong is that hidden trauma hanging out behind your head that you're not paying attention to. And, and actually, this is something I, I, I have discovered and within my own recovery journey, you may have discovered this as well, is that as soon as you start talking about this, your dreams are going to get really wild and crazy. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Oh my gosh. You know, when I started therapy, when I was 30, Denise, one of the things that my therapist did was encourage me to work with the dream content that I had because they went wild. My dreams Mm. went crazy with all the content that was hidden in my subconscious. And don't be afraid of it. No. But, um, this is, don't be, a, don't be scared. I'm talking to those who are like, I don't know. I'm mm-hmm. just, we're just preparing you. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's helpful. And it's, you know, the, the content of our minds is nothing to be afraid of. Everything we know about who we are, even if we don't remember it, every experience we had is wired in there. It's somewhere deep in the bottom or it's right on top. And it all can be helpful it's sort of like feeding your growth. It's the food for your personal growth, your professional growth once you're an adult. And I always have been told that if you have a particularly interesting dream, keep your eyes closed so you can retain the information longer. And then when you wake up, just write down everything or better yet, get your phone and just start talking about it. Uh huh. Because yeah. that's giving you some valuable information about things you may have repressed. Yes. And as soon as you move your head or get out of bed, you've forgotten it. It falls right out of your head. Mm -hmm. I had a really fascinating dream this morning between when I first woke up at four o'clock and when I woke up again at six o'clock and I'll be darned if I can remember it now (laughs) (laughs) because I didn't do that. I didn't write it down, but it was really cool. Yeah. And I did do a lot of that during my um, therapeutic work. I was in um, incest recovery therapeutic work for about seven years in my thirties. And um, I did a lot of, um, I read a book called lucid dreaming. Um, to help me learn how to manage and work within the content of my dreams. And I would literally wake up and lie very still. I didn't, couldn't even move my head. And I would remember the dream and think about it and get the key highlights and then grab a, a journal and a pen and jot it down and take it into, take it into therapy, take it into further journaling to learn from it. Hmm. Mm-hmm. So these, these are just one of many things that I just want to make sure everyone's aware of, but I want to kind of switch gears a little bit if I make uh, Carol, and talk with you about this whole issue of maladaptive strategies. Mm. And we talked about codependency for sure, but can we talk about manipulation? Yes. You know, (laughs) I'm so familiar with manipulation because it used to be a primary strategy for me. I really didn't know how to get what I wanted by directly asking. And that's, Mm. that's the healthy strategy. Identify what you want and ask for it cleanly, clearly with no expectations 
or no effort to try to get what you, you know, get the right answer, the quote, right answer. Mm -hmm. um, and the alternative to doing that, to just straightforward asking for what you want or what you need is to try to get people to give it to you without ever naming it. And so we do things like um, fish for compliments. Oh, mm. I'm just a terrible person. I don't know why you even like me. I hate it when people say something like that to me because it's so clearly a pitch for me to respond. Oh, you're, not, you're a great person. I, you know, um, and those kinds of strategies become so toxic in mm. any relationship from a mm. couple you know, a relationship at work with a colleague to all the way to a spouse or a bestie or a, a grown daughter, you know, your children. Um, we, we can, we're so terribly creative as children. I, and I want to say this with a lot of kindness and no judgment. We are so creative as children. We create incredible strategies for getting around the fact that we think people don't like us, don't love mm. us, won't stay with us. The threat to child under three always, and even an older child, is you will leave me and I will be alone. That's, mm. a, that's a death sentence when you're three and the person you're thinking about is your parent. Mm. You need people to stay with you. And so rather than developing a strong sense of belonging, we develop this sense of desperately trying to fit in and manipulate and control the environment and other people so that we feel safe and like we're accepted and can stay. I used to say, I have to buy my um, right to walk around in the world mm. with, with my behavior. Mm. Yeah. And that's not true. <laughs> now I know that. I I'm a huge, huge fan of Eric Byrne and transactional analysis and this idea of strokes. And mm. for those who don't have any idea what I'm talking about, we all need some form of appreciation, acknowledgement, or just being aware and knowing that I exist, you appreciate me, and I have some sort of value. And we do that through, hey, you look great today. Love your blouse. Oh, I love the fact that you turned this project on time or whatever. And if we don't get enough of it, we will seek it any kind of way. And sometimes we will intimidate yes. with fear, right? Or seduce mm -hmm. with guilt. Yes. Yes. Oh, so true. That all the ways to control, all the ways to control. And it's, it's, um, it becomes something that is very toxic mm. to live with both in the expression and in the receiving end of it. it. It's a little prison. It's a little prison. And while that behavior, that style may have worked fine with your mom or your dad, or your cousin within your own little ecosystem, try that in the real world where yeah. you have, <laughs> you play secretive games with your clients about yeah. when or when you're going to deliver the project or yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> or, or, or try that out with the clerk at the grocery store when he tells you that, that he's not going to go into the back to look for more because there's no more left. Right. So let me just bully you and tell you what a terrible person you are and tell you I'm going to report you to your boss. I, I, one of the things I have discovered since I've done my own recovery work and assisted clients over the years is I am incredibly sympathetic to retail staff. Mm -hmm. incredibly mm -hmm. sympathetic 
And I didn't have that sympathy until I realized how many people were exploding their unresolved childhood issues on the waiters, on the cashiers, on the clerks, or anyone within like striking distance. Absolutely. Absolutely. And now we have now we have this terrible um, stereotype of the Karen. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) and apologies to all the people named Karen. I don't use that term myself, but it's become popular usage to identify such a person um, as this category of somebody who just treats everybody badly. But I think what we need to recognize is if we can remove the shame and the blame element of that, it's like this is a person acting out patterns from childhood this Mm. is this is probably not their intention to behave like this this is the best they've got because they didn't get what they needed Mm -hmm. and you know i'm going to say something that it's going to be taboo but this needs to be said because i i i'm really tired of this and i've had so many clients come to me privately and talk with me white males specifically feeling as if they didn't have a right to live Mm-hmm. And the ad- advent of George Floyd and some other, you know, stuff mm-hmm. that was happening in the last couple of years. And they said, oh, my goodness, I'm trying to be better. Maybe I should hire more people. Or maybe I should do all these things to support more black businesses. And I'm saying you only do the things that make you feel good. Yeah. Not out of the need to please. Because I've seen new forms of codependency pop up. And it's, I think it's dangerous. Yeah, I do, too. I do, too. It's like the popular uh, woke, <laughs> the popular mm-hmm. wokeness you know, instead of the real awakening. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I, and I see people are getting caught in this, the, the victim, persecutor, and rescuer triangle. Oh, say that again. The victim, persecutor, persecutor and rescuer. rescuer. They, yeah, yeah. yeah. A, a psychiatrist in the 60s, Stephen Cartman uh-huh. developed the, uh, the drama triangle and i find a lot of people continue those same dynamics with the trauma because they they get stuck and the big p the persecutor Uh (laughs) the big v the victim who doesn't seem to be self-aware or uh, understanding of their own power you know Uh or the big r that constantly tries to bail out adults or anyone who can't who can't be fully autonomous in whatever capacity. That's like a circle of tight codependence. Mm. <laughs> Everybody's being codependent. Everybody's and, being, yeah. And I, my experience of it personally in a job dynamic I was in is that people can be cast in the roles even though they're not playing the roles. So mm. I got identified as the persecutor because I was the person in authority. So that's an easy pairing. And somebody playing the victim was uh, reacting to me as if I was persecuting them, even though I wasn't. And they found a rescuer Mm. to protect them from me. Yeah, it was fascinating. Wow. (laughs) Painful, but fascinating. I I try to extricate myself from those situations as quick as possible once I realize that dynamic's being set up. Because it's, it's quicksand. It is. It's very hard to get out of that once it starts. Very hard. And yeah. it's made and it's made those those other dynamics that you talked about, about avoidance and secretiveness can make all of that much, much worse. So, you know, part of the victimhood was, oh, I can't um, I asked to, you know, face my accuser, basically. Can I have this person say these things to my face instead of behind my back? Oh, no, she's way too afraid of you to do that. She's afraid <laughs> you're going to 
she's afraid you're going to xyz her because you're so terrible right so then i could then i was really in the quicksand and i really could not get out of it yeah had to to physically leave the job in order to get out of it wow well yeah and and actually this brings me to another point that for those who are listening and they're like oh my goodness i'm stuck in one of those roles and it might require something drastic I mean, yes. I personally had to quit jobs. I, I literally at one point have shed away all my old clothes. I mean, the, the identity has to shift. Yes. And it, we can really shift our identity by doing some of this, returning to the origins of who we were. So you don't have to remember birth to three and you won't, in fact, but we can make a guess at how birth to three went based on the patterns you observe in yourself now. And that's why all of the success strategies begin with self-awareness. I have to be willing to look at what I'm doing and how other people are perceiving me. There must be some kernel of truth. You know, so the kernel of truth in me being the persecutor is I'm a very powerful, strongly opinionated woman who says what I think. People don't like that very much. It's been my Mm. experience. A lot Mm. of people don't don't feel comfortable with a woman who is like that. And Mm. so... You know, it's easy to cast me as someone who goes beyond that and is a persecutor. But I have to be willing to look at, without shame, without blame, what is it in my behavior that invokes that in other people? And what do I want to do about that, if anything? What is it in my behavior? This was back when I was in my 40s. What made people call me blunt and abrasive Mm. on a a 360 review? Well, Mm. it was my social anxiety, my eagerness to get out of the social interaction that made me uncomfortable. Mm. And I had to see that and not feel bad about myself, but simply look at it and say, what can I do differently? I'm so glad that you talk about self-awareness and this has, and I hate to say this, but there, this cannot be done with your friends. Sorry. Because they're probably (laughs) (laughs) cahoots with you in terms of this victim persecutor rescue dynamic in one form or fashion or another. This needs to be someone who's not in love with you. Yes. Yes. And that's where, as I think there's such a great um, new dynamic in our culture now with a proliferation of people who can coach you on a wide variety of things. You don't have to feel like, oh, I'm, I'm not crazy enough for therapy, but something's not right. Right. You can just say, well, okay, let's talk to a business coach or a life coach or a self-awareness coach. Let's get some help from somewhere from somebody who isn't smitten with me. Mm. and i and i i love like collaborating with with uh, people like you Kara, because we all have our own niches mm. that we can't cover we can't care, cover it all everyone has a different angle right yeah i would be the last person in the world to coach you on how to be effective in your sales mm. <laughs> not my thing i don't know how to tell somebody how to be a good salesperson but i do know how to tell you how to be a good interpersonal person how to be a person who gets along on the grown-up playgrounds all over your life i really want people to take advantage of your upcoming workshop again the links in the show notes below so um make make sure that you take advantage of it but i i also want to talk with you about this idea of rejection Mm. yeah i know even even in my own personal ex- life experiences, I did not want to be rejected at all. So I would go to great lengths to be perfect, which was incredibly flawed. And everyone knew it was flawed, but me, well, yeah. actually even me, but I, we all were working so hard to keep up the delusion that 
no correction needed to be done. So it actually got worse and worse and worse and worse. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think that, again, I think this stems from the toddler period of feeling like I'm not okay as I am, but there's this, there's this dynamic now of, you know, Brene Brown talks about in Daring Greatly, she talks about the difference between belonging and fitting in. Mm. And when we fear rejection, our work is all around fitting in, which is bending and shaping yourself into something you're not in order that they won't reject me. Mm. Belonging is the sense that I'm okay the way I am and I Mm. will find my tribe. Mm. Maybe these aren't the right people for me, but it's not about me. It's about, we're not a good fit. You know, there's no judgment. They're they're not bad. I'm not bad. It's just just a good fit for me. There are other people that I belong with besides these people. And if you grow up in a family where you don't fit, where you're the odd person, and that happens to some of us, then that's the message. The main message that we might take away from that is one of rejection, that, that in order to be a belonger in this family, I have to change who I am. I only like you as long as you, and then yes. there's qualifiers. Then you yes. know you do not belong. Yes, that's right. And I know they don't really like me. <laughs> right? They, oh, like, well, they this... like the version I portray on my Instagram. Right. Yeah, there you go. There you go. I remember I... saying to my mom once, you know, I think you don't really love me. You love this cardboard cutout of some other daughter that you hold up in front of me and you wish I was. And her answer, wonderfully enough, Denise, was, I kind of feel the same way about you. Wow. That was the beginning of a real big change in our relationship right there. Wow. You know, and actually, this is a really great point to mention about parents, because I often find that a lot of clients over the years have literally acted their lives out of rebellion against their parents ideas of what they're supposed to be so they self-destruct and with overeating self-destruct with alcohol self-destruct self-destruct in doing careers that they don't even like right ding 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 that sounds like me (laughs) yeah and and there there's always a u-turn yes there's always a u-turn even though you think it's a carved road that you have to take on you don't have to and yeah. I, Claude Steiner, he was a protege of Eric Byrne, wrote a book called Scripts People Live. It's, uh, it's such a fabulous book. And in it, he talks about this idea that we have been scripted to either be joyless, loveless, or not able to be the feeling. Oh. And th- I've taken on these injunctions. When I say injunctions, I'm talking about the things that Carol and I talk about. Don't think, don't love, don't mm-hmm. ask for help, mm-hmm. don't be be good enough. Yes. And we can make it, we can confront those old messages and make a U-turn. Yes. Yes. And that feeling uh, of not enoughness is a big one. That's a, such a common, it's like a disease today that mm. none of us are enough. We're either too much or we're not enough, but we're never mm. just right. And the truth is we're always just right. As long as we are being true to ourselves in, in you know, our, our, our awareness is on our integrity, I would say. Integrity is the key to happiness. There's a new book out called The Way of Integrity. And I think that's the main message of it, that we, when we are in alignment, when our behavior, our external presentation is in alignment with internal values, beliefs, and emotional life, there is really nothing that can get in the way of that. Mm. 
Mm. You know, there are 7.75 billion people in this world. I assure you, you can find someone that is aligned with your interests. Yeah. <laughs> and your values know affect you the way you are. Oftentimes, yes. it's, it's so insidious, Carol. We, because of the way the messages we got, because of our scripts, we associate with people that confirm our own internal beliefs about ourselves. Yes. Yes. And that is, you know, that is broken by more self-awareness, by more awareness of what those internal drivers are. Yeah. Yeah. And can we talk a little bit about why we need to get over the shame or the embarrassment of seeking help? Because I think there are some people who, who have been listening to podcasts like this and say, yeah, I know, but I'll just listen to this and this is enough. Mm-mm. You know, this is like going to a one hour workshop on your entire profession and thinking you're ready to launch into a (laughs) lifetime career. You know, this is just the tip of the iceberg. You know, what we can talk about in an hour is this, you know, it's like not even the tip of the iceberg. It's more like the fairy dust on the cake. It's, Mm. it's light. It's the L I T E version of the work. And if it resonates for you, that invites you to do the work. Because the real work is you sit down and you spend some time with a coach. You sit down and you spend some time with yourself and you really look at what are my patterns? What am I doing? Is it working? Is it working for me? Is my life an A plus? Ask Mm. yourself that. Do I give myself an A plus on my life right now? And if the answer is no, then you need some deeper work than listening to one podcast, going to one workshop. That's just gets you introduced to what you need to do. I I see reverberations of unmet needs everywhere. I'll never forget mm. uh, when I went to the dentist to get my cleaning done, and I I w- went to the the dentist and I said, yeah, I got my braces. You know, I'm a 40 year old woman with braces, and I said, he asked how was it, and he's I told him it was painful. He looked at me with a deadpan voice and says good he was enjoying the fact that I was in pain because he was in pain with his failed career because he wanted to be uh, doing something that he didn't want to do anymore wow and you could see the pain on his face wow that's sad that's so sad it happens everywhere yes where we think that we're getting away with it we're not getting away with any anything no. And I remember this conversation I had with this particular dentist and he said, yeah, I was doing home improvement. I had a business that kind of fell through and I just fell back on this dentistry. And I've just over the years talking with him, it was just very clear that he lost all passion mm-hmm. for his work and it was just collecting a paycheck. Mm-hmm. That's no way to live. No, no. And there's that's that's when the shame has like taken over. It seems like to me the, the, that I'm so. I feel so much shame for who I am that I just give up. I can't. And that, that's a very sad thing. That's a very sad thing. You know, more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I I think too many of us are living day to day with our eyes cast down to our shoes, thinking that everybody doesn't like us and we should be different. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my, oh, my wife, she, she demands I make certain amount of money. Oh, my friends, they only expect me to the, go to the yacht club during the summers. Oh, and when you think about it, they never said such things. No, the expectations are the ones I put upon myself. And then 
project them onto other people. And one of the things I think about shame is we live with shame inside all the time. And then we just project it onto other, we paint the world with it. So the other people are shaming me. The other people are having this feeling about me, but it's really true that I'm having it all the time. I'm always ashamed. I mm. never feel like I'm right. And so if I say something, I immediately feel like it wasn't right. And the reason I think so is because I'm looking around at the body language and the facial expressions and I'm interpreting it to mean they're ashamed of me, but really I'm just already automatically ashamed of myself. One of the things that I had to learn and you probably had experience as well as being an entrepreneur is not absorbing externalized blame. Mm -hmm. And so let, let me, let me break that down for those who are listening. Like, well, what is she talking about? So let's say a client, you're working with a client. It doesn't matter what it is, web design or coaching or whatever. And they say, well, I'm not doing the work because of you. And uh -huh. you know, you've given them the tools and the resources and the time and they refuse not to not to comply. And they're more or less blaming you for things that they are responsible for. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's called externalizing the blame because of their own shame and inability to own up to their own side of the street that they are trying to kick the dirt on yours. Yes. Yes. And, and that's why coming to a place of neutrality of, of curiosity is the way I think of it. Now I felt as a young person, so certain that I knew everything about what was right and what was wrong. Um, who was doing, who was the person in charge? Who was the person not in charge? Who was the person who was responsible? I thought I knew stuff and I was mm. very certain about the stuff that I thought I knew. Mm. And now what I'm learning is it's much, much healthier for me to stay in curiosity. I don't mm. know why that is. I don't know why that person did that. I'm not going to just make a snap judgment and decide that person did that because they're a narcissist. That person did that because they were abused as a child. I'm not going to go there. I'm mm. not going to make it be something that I'm certain about anymore. I'm going to ask questions. Mm. Why would mm. you say that? Mm. You know, why did you, when I did that, why did you do that in return? Help me understand. Mm. It's my first, that was my first phrase to get out of it. Help me understand. Mm. Mm. And because we often go launch the worst, incorrect, erroneous conclusion. Yes. Yes, absolutely. And it comes out of our own, you know, dynamics of our own shame and the dynamics mm. of our own not enoughness or too muchness, not rightness. <sighs> wow. I, I, I know we probably can make this into to a two hour podcast, <laughs> but I want to make sure that I honor everybody's time. Carol, if there is any overarching theme or main idea that the listeners should know, what should it be and why? I think it's to really be gentle with yourself. See if you can shift from the constant internal beating yourself up about being wrong and get curious about how you could be different, not right, but just different. If it's not an A plus for you right now, if you feel like you're making a C at life, what mm. could you do to raise it to a B? What would work? And talk to other people who you see as being more successful, getting a B at life, getting an A at life. Ask them what they did to get mm. there. Ask them about the past. Were you always an A plus or did you start out as a D like me? <laughs> mm. You know, get get gentle with yourself and get curious about how you belong and who you belong with. Because it, like, as you said, out of the 8 billion people on the planet, there should be at least a couple 
who get you. <laughs> um, where can people reach out to you? And I know we're going to leave some links in the show notes below, but anything that you want people to go first? You know, I'm really excited about my YouTube channel. We are really building content there. We have a lot of great short 10-minute videos available now on topics from how to get along with your in-laws to um, how to handle holiday times with your family and a whole lot of other stuff. And I'm looking for subscribers. I'm trying to get to 100. We're at 78 this afternoon. And I'm trying to get to 100 because they give you a, um, a custom URL. You don't have this long URL with all these letters and numbers. You can like use your name or something. I could use sassy or something like that. So that's my goal of the month is to get to 100 YouTube subscribers. So jump on over to YouTube and look for L. Carol Scott and uh, subscribe and ring that bell for notifications. Oh, I hope people do that. Carol, it just has been such a pleasurable conversation. I definitely will help hope that people will take advantage of all everything you've got going on and that more importantly that they accept the fact that they were wonderfully and beautifully made and that perfection doesn't exist but acceptance is always here oh perfect amen denise thank you well thank you carol and i'm so excited to talk with you again at a future time thanks for those of you guys who have been listening make sure that if this has really impacted you that you share this podcast with somebody else and more importantly write a review this helps grow this podcast and brings people more people like carol onto the show and carol i know for a fact that you will be changing so many lives through this episode alone oh thanks denise i hope so all right thank you guys for listening take care and be awesome